Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Nicholas Bucala. His new book is The Fire is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr., and the Debate Over Race in America. On February 18, 1965, an overflowing crowd packed the Cambridge Union in Cambridge, England, to witness a historic televised debate between James Baldwin, the leading literary voice of the Civil Rights Movement, and William F. Buckley Jr., a fierce critic of the movement and America's most influential conservative intellectual. The topic was, the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro, and no one who has seen the debate can soon forget it. Nicholas Bucala's The Fire is Upon Us is the first book to tell the full story of the event, the radically different paths that led Baldwin and Buckley to it, the controversies that followed, and how the debate and the decades-long clash between the men continues to illuminate America's racial divide today. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Nicholas Bucala. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. I'm so happy to be with you. It's great to have you on. You've written this book, The Fire is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr., and the debate over race in America. So it's interesting because you framed the race debate in the country specifically in terms of an actual debate that happened at the Cambridge Union, right, in, in 1965. And this is... It's an interesting sort of style of debate, right? Because this is like a very formal kind where there's a proposition that's actually debated and then people argue pro or con the, you know, the, the, the proposition on the floor and then it's, it, it, then it's voted to. I mean, I think when people think of debate, we, we don't think of it in terms of something that formal and specific. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, Scott, you cut out for a second there. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, this is a formal debate at the Cambridge Union. So this is a a really, uh, you know, old debating society. They had just marked their 150th anniversary. Um, and the, 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 the union debating style itself, it varies a little bit depending on the particular debate, what format they'll use. But um, for this particular uh, debate between Baldwin and Buckley in February of 65, they, uh, yeah, it was, it was a very formal affair. Um, you had two student debaters on each side. The motion before the House was the American dream is the expense of the American Negro, and there was one student debater on each side of the motion, and then uh, Baldwin spoke for about 24 minutes, and Buckley spoke for about 29 minutes. So, um, yes, yeah, so it was a very formal structure. There was no, uh, you know, there's no give and take. There was no actual back and forth between Baldwin and Buckley uh, during the debate uh, at Cambridge. Uh, so that made, you know, for a particular kind of event. Um, they met a few months later, as, as we may talk about uh, later in our conversation, on American television that was a much more back and forth sort of format uh, on David Susskind's television show, television show Open End. Yeah, it's interesting that this 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 debate too can be seen on YouTube and I watched it and it, it, I mean it is remarkable uh, these two figures because they both have such interesting and distinct styles. They're both incredibly articulate. Uh, and it, you talk about in the book it's interesting because they grew up they're both New Yorkers. There's these strange and interesting parallels in their lives, right? I mean, they both are come from homes that take their own sort of intellectual 
and character formation seriously. I mean, they, they, it's an interesting that these two people uh, who are such different ideological ends of the spectrum had such interesting lives that, that were both very dissimilar, but in some interesting ways alike, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Baldwin and Buckley, you know, they're both born in New York City. Baldwin is born in 1924 in Harlem, and uh, Buckley um, is born elsewhere in New New York City. And as I say in the book, they they may as well have been born on different planets in the sense that um, Baldwin is born oldest of nine children. Uh, His family is at the margins of the margins uh, in so many ways. And he describes a childhood that was really marked by domination, marked by oppression, marked by uh, he says the defining feature of my my upbringing is that my parents struggled to feed their children, and and so Baldwin talks about the experience in his autobiographical writings and and also in his fiction writing about the experience of what it's like to be a you know a child growing up in those circumstances, um, and and Buckley on the other hand is you know is born to tremendous affluence. His father was a a real estate and an oil man, you know, so he was awash and. And new money he had made, lost and, and regained fortunes by the time uh, his son was born. And and uh, his mother, uh, Aloise Steiner Buckley, came from old money in New Orleans. And so you have new money on one hand, old money on the other. But the, you know the key word there is money. Lots and lots of money. And so the the Buckleys, uh, you know, Buckley had this experience of growing up in a household that was, you know, there were there were live-in servants, live-in tutors. Um, uh, every you know everything he could ever want was was available to him and and the the thing that as you pointed out there is this interesting commonality between <clears throat> Baldwin and Buckley although they have these very different backgrounds um, both of them from a very young age is is really taken with the power of language uh, and and Baldwin finds you know a refuge in, in books and so he talks about going to the Harlem Library and reading every book uh, in the library and then venturing out. Uh, beyond the you know the the confines of his neighborhood to other libraries and describes the experience of being told in no uncertain terms that he did not belong in in libraries that uh, were meant for for white children and and Baldwin though is taken by the power of books to connect people across time and space I mean he's really he reads people like Dickens and he finds in the characters that Dickens is describing experiences that he can relate to and he he reads, um, you know, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and that's a book that has a great impact on him as a young man. And um, and and he's, he's he begins writing and finding ways in which to express his own, um, you know, kind of feelings about what he's experiencing in Harlem through words. <clears throat> and and then he ends up uh, spending some time as a as a young minister as a, in the Harlem storefront churches, and and really is is taken with the power of language to connect with his congregation. And he says, there's nothing quite like that feeling uh, when the church began to rock. And he felt this connection to his to, uh, to the people who are in the church. And, and Buckley, on the other hand, um, he is taught from a very young age that, that words are, are very, very important um, in order to articulate defenses of a particular worldview. And so he, uh, he ends up really devoting his life. He doesn't want to become his father. He doesn't have much interest in following his father into you know real estate and, and the oil business, but he he does um, develop this de- desire to use words to defend his father's worldview and to defend the systems that his father has taught him have made their affluence possible. So there is this kind of you know they, they're living these. Par- I mean, one of the things that was intriguing to me as I as I thought about the book was at first I had sort of a smaller book in mind about the the debate and how it happened and what happened that night. But as I began to think about Baldwin and Buckley living these parallel lives, you know, born about a year apart from each other, coming of age intellectually, 
at about the same time in the late 40s, early 1950s, uh, it really, be- I became, you know, kind of transfixed with this idea of thinking about these two lives, these two individuals who play such an important role um, in American political life in the second half of the 20th century, really think, well, you know, they're so prolific that we have a you know, sort of a glimpse into their minds almost every day of the week. And so um, I was really intrigued by the idea of thinking with them um, as they're viewing this world that's changing so rapidly around them. And of course, they're shaping um, in their own respective ways in terms of the civil rights struggle and the conser- the rise of the conservative movement. Yeah. Why this book for you? I mean, it, why? How'd you get into this, the Buckley Baldwin debate, like what what drew you to to that as a source of study, and then and then you know, and again you decide to expand it and, and get into both of their lives. Yeah, I mean the I started it started with Baldwin for me. I mean Buckley was somebody on my radar, and I I was interested in him. Um, you know, just as a somebody who's interested in American political thought, and and uh, I had thought a little bit about the conservative movement in in various ways over the years. But Baldwin, I was uh, invited to write an essay about. Baldwin uh, for a book uh, that my uh, colleague and friend Sue McWilliams was editing called The Political Companion to James Baldwin. And when I started that pro- the, that project, I actually did not I did not know Baldwin's works especially well. But I uh, I read a lot of Baldwin and I became um, very interested. I mean, Baldwin was sort of was somebody who uh, was you know teaching me to view the world in a different way. Um, and so I, I was really taken with Baldwin. And as I was reading and reading and reading more and more Baldwin, I began, uh, I, I discovered like all this YouTube material of Baldwin, including the debate with Buckley. And so once I came across that debate, I was just, I kind of became obsessed with it. It seemed like such a remarkable moment um, of these two, you know, public intellectuals in their primes debating on this international stage at the, you know, apex of the civil rights revolution. And I, I just, you know, it just became clear to me. And so I began with that essay. I wrote an essay about Baldwin and Buckley back in 2013, 2014. I was working on that essay. And as I worked on the essay, I kept thinking, there's a book, there's a book here. And um, I, I just really liked the idea of, you know, having these two men who were embodiments of these two movements that were so crucial to the, you know, American political development in that period um, on this international stage. So I knew the debate itself, you know, was a, was a kind of really, useful hook in terms of, okay, here's this moment where these two important public intellectuals are clashing. Um, and then, you know, as I said a moment ago, just thinking about ways in which, you know, the debate itself is this climactic moment in this story, but the the backstory, right, of how these two individuals arrived there that, that night um, and what they brought to that stage that night in terms of their own intellectual developments, these radically different life experiences, radically different worldviews, um, that to me seemed like a really interesting way to do political theory and intellectual history. I'm a political theory by training, so most of my work prior to this book was much more um, for a you know a, a, an academic audience. But with this story, um, I I really felt as I began to work on it, like this is a story that is not really meant. I mean, in academics, I hope academics enjoy it and scholars get something out of it. But really, it's a, it's a story that is about you know what it means to be an American and this story of of race in this country is is so central to, to, to everything. And as, and as Baldwin teaches us, history is present in everything that we do. And so the story itself, I mean, these two individuals are such fascinating, um, you know, human beings. So that was really, uh, really pulled me in. And then also they're, they're just both so prolific because they're writing 
so much, um, both publicly, their public writings and also the private writings, you know, that I was able to access through the archives. I mean, you really do get this peek into their minds as they're as they're living through and shaping this history. And so uh, it seemed to me like putting them together in some ways, they're a very odd couple, you know, and I've gotten a lot of interesting questions in uh, you know, as I've given talks about the book and, and as I worked on the book um, about, you know, like really Baldwin and Buckley together, does that, does that pairing work? And it, although the, what they're up to their, uh, you know, their sort of roles, the way they conceived of their roles in American society were radically different. Um, I do think there's a way in which, you know, putting them together makes a lot of sense. And, and Baldwin, you know, provides us with a very powerful lens through which to to view somebody like Buckley. And I think Buckley, for his part, although he's, uh, you know, I, I think that, I make the claim in the book, Buckley isn't quite as deep a thinker as Baldwin. And I don't think he really thought of himself as an especially deep thinker. He thought of himself as a popularizer, as an organizer. Um, Buckley plays this outsized role in the in the shaping of the American conservative movement. And so um, although the the nature of their importance is, is very different, I think they are both extraordinarily important. And we are still grappling with a lot of the same questions that they were debating over the years. And so that's why I think this is such a powerful story. And Buckley still has, I mean, Baldwin is, it, because he's probably a figure that looms larger in, in American history in a wider sense because the civil, the civil rights movement and, and again, like academics and, and academic interests and things like that. But, but Buckley has like a, a like a, a still live cult following today. I mean, there are people that are still in the National Review. There are people sitting around that still wax finely about, you know, sitting, drinking martinis and listening to music at his, his apartment. And I mean, these are so I'm wondering, like, how the movement conservatives have reacted to your work. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they, they it's on the radar, right? Yeah, it is. And I, I'm I'm still bracing myself. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I should say that Buckley is somebody who there's not like a fatwa on you, right? Like, hey, this guy's, you know, he's he's taking, you know, he's, he's he's drawing a picture of the prophet or something. He's, you know, really like <laughs> not not yet. No, nothing uh, like that yet. Uh, my, you know, uh, my family does, you know, worry a little bit about that, you know. So we've we've tightened up security, but um, but no, I mean, I think it's been interesting. I, I haven't, um, you know, gotten uh, an overly hostile reaction action uh, from anybody yet. Um, I, the book has been reviewed uh, by um, by some conservatives. I know that na- the National Review itself, you know, Buckley's magazine will be uh, publishing a review soon. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that turns out. But yeah, I mean, going back to your original question, uh, I mean, Buckley is somebody who still is, I think, a kind of icon of, of a certain brand of conservatism. I mean, it's, it's kind of fascinating to watch the ways in which Buckley's legacy is is playing out in this era of Trump. And we can talk about that as well. But yeah, I mean, Buckley is a, is a kind of, you know, her- hero in a lot of ways. I mean, George Will, I think most famously said, you know, without William F. Buckley uh, in National Review, there would have been no Goldwater. Without Goldwater, there would have been no Ronald Reagan. Without Ronald Reagan, there would be no victory in the Cold War. So, I mean, when, when Will said that, of course, he's giving Buckley this this very uh, large role, not only in American political history, but in world history. And so, there is a kind of way in which Buckley is this really important figure. Uh, and what people often don't realize is that when Buckley was founding National Review in November 1955, there really was not something we could call a conservative movement. There were disparate factions on the American right. There were libertarians, especially interest, uh, worried about state power and economic affairs. There were you know, traditionalists who were especially concerned about the decline of uh, religion and morality in the West. But they were anti-communists, right? And so Buckley had this idea of forming a coalition 
uh, and trying to hold everybody together with this glue of anti-communism. And he was extraordinarily successful in that. So through a magazine, Buckley had seen the ways in which magazines like The New Republic and The Nation had played a really important role in shaping the progressive movement in the first half of the 20th century. And so he set as a goal for himself using National Review as this kind of way of organizing the conservative movement and also playing the role of a kind of gatekeeper of keeping particular groups out of the conservative movement that he didn't deem to be intellectually serious or respectable. And so Buckley is this extraordinarily important figure in you know American political history and um, and so, yeah, I think now he's you know, there's a lot of there's been a lot of discussion of Buckley uh, from right and left, you know, people sort of lamenting like, wh- where is our William F. Buckley? We need more, uh, you know, kind of intelligent conservatives, um, you know, and I think especially Trump is a useful foil for that sort of argument. But, you know, what I argue in the book, Trump is, uses the best words, he's got <laughs> the best education. He's got there's no doubt better than Buckley. Tremendous, <laughs> tremendous, tremendous. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and, and, and Trump and Buckley, I mean, I, there's, I, I don't talk about Trump that much by name in the book, but he's, he's certainly there as a presence, right? I mean, as I, uh, I mean, because part of what I'm getting at in the, in the book is trying to look at, you know, through Buckley, but through also Buckley circle, the ways in which racial politics have evolved on the American right over the last, you know, 50, 60 years. And so, um, you know, there's a there's been a lot of discussion of like if if William F. Buckley were alive today, he'd be, he'd be you know beside himself with the rise of Trump. And I think there's a way in which stylistically, as you pointed out, there's a a kind of style that Buckley had that um, for right and left has been very alluring. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people since I began working on the book, people who are on you know far far left uh, who lo- who had this kind of love for William F. Buckley, even if they loathed his politics or something about his style and his way of presenting himself that is very alluring. And also for a lot of radicals, Buckley, um, you know, with with his show Firing Line, he provided a lot of radicals a platform they wouldn't otherwise have because he loved having people on like Noam Chomsky and Allen Ginsberg and Huey Newton because he he really liked to have those sorts of exchanges and it made for great television. Huey Newton asked him, right? I was Huey Newton asked him like, uh, and finally, like, who would you, would you have sided with King George or the revolutionaries? (laughs) Like, like, in the first question of the debate, like, and, and it's so intriguing because they get this fascinating discussion, right? About he kind of puts Buck, Buckley back on his heels. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really great exchange. Um, yeah, yeah. Newton asks precisely that that question, uh, and it's right after Buckley introduces him too. So I mean, but you know, he, Newton is just immediately kind of turning the tables on Buckley, and that's something that um, Buckley. Uh, yeah, that's not he didn't he never liked to be on the defense. I mean, one of the things that's clear, and this is something I talk about a little in the book, is going back to his earliest days as a debater. Um, he was always, you know, really good at cr- critiquing the other side, at, you know, you know, asking these, you know, question, rapid fire questions and, and raising all sorts of problems with the arguments of his opponents. Um, but he was never especially comfortable defending his own views. And so then that's that's evident in, you know, a lot of the, the things I talk about in the book. It's certainly evident in, in his inter- encounters with James Baldwin. Uh, you know, he he essentially tries to paint Baldwin in a particular way. Uh, and and is not really interested in offering you know any sort of thorough defense of his own views. And Buckley himself never really got around to. He set, kept saying, "One day I'll write a big book defending my political philosophy." And he signed a contract to do that in 1961. He had a title for it. It was called "The Revolt Against the Masses," but he never got around to doing it. Uh, and so yeah, Buckley is you know I think substantively 
you know, it's, he's a really interesting character in terms of understanding the ways in which he articulated a defense of, um, you know, the status quo in, in some instances and the ways in which he articulated a kind of critique, like, in the, you know, obviously in the book, I'm focused mostly on Buckley's response to the black liberation struggle. And, um, and you know, Buckley is, I think, an important character substantively, although he's very stylistically very different from Trump. I, you know, I argue in the book, there's a, a kind of racial politics of racial resentment that Buckley popularized through National Review and, and, and in his own political life as a, you know, a um, as a, you know, this bid for new, mayor of New York City. And there's a kind of way in which Buckley, ironically, one of the great elitists in the history of American politics, actually ran as a, a populist um, when he ran for mayor of New York City. And so although he didn't like Trump personally, he wrote a piece in Cigar Aficionado in, in 2000 in which he you know, called Trump a narcissist that had the makings of a demagogue. Uh, he didn't like him personally. He didn't like him stylistically. But substantively, on some of these issues, they actually had a lot in common. No, it's interesting that 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 Buckley's sort of fear of someone like Baldwin is that, you know, in this debate, he sort of says, well, look, I, I need to treat you like a white man. And, and basically what he's saying, he's kind of it seems like he's sort of saying, look, I'm just an old fashioned enlightenment liberal. Right. Like, and of course, you know, racism is a big, you know, the, the, the race problem is a problem. But the, the problem isn't to get more racial. It's to get less racial and. Obviously, we have anybody would have compassion on these awful experiences Baldwin and other blacks have experienced. And yet, what would you have us do? You know, he, he, he quotes Baldwin saying, the only thing we want from the white man is power, I think, in the fire next time or something. And he says, you know, so basically he hears Baldwin is saying, you know, that, 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 that if we if we don't if we take seriously the black struggle for liberation and equality, it's going to undermine America. There's going to be dogs and cats living together like it's the apocalypse. Right. And so his fear is that basically, uh, yeah, hey, of course, we don't like uh, uh, unequal treatment. But, you know, come on, we got to go incrementally or else the, the whole thing's just going to come tumbling down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's I, I think you, you capture a couple of really important lines of argument that Buckley makes in the in the debate with Baldwin at Cambridge. I mean, part of what. Buckley argues and that that line, there's two lines that were especially irksome to William F. Buckley Jr. Uh, when he he either when he read Baldwin or if he didn't, I'm not entirely sure he read Baldwin. It's one of the sort of mysteries of the book is did he actually ever read Baldwin or did he just read reviews of Baldwin, uh, especially the review that had been written of Baldwin by Gary Wills for National right. Review. And Gary Wills was kind of pissed at this later, right? That like basically he kind of cribbed Gary Will and Gary Wills kind of moved for lack of a better term, left in his views on Baldwin after that and, and, and even still wasn't where Buckley was and felt like he kind of stylized his his take on things in ways that were that Wills wasn't comfortable with. Right, right. And so, yeah, I mean, essentially what uh, what Baldwin what Baldwin argues, I mean, what, what, Buck, what Buckley argues in the debate is that Baldwin is this radical hellbent on overthrowing Western civilization. He's anti-Christian. He's anti, you know, the Western philosophical tradition and um, and part of what Buckley was was coming up with there was relying on on what on Wills's take on Baldwin. Uh, and, and so what Buckley essentially is kind of two lines that he uses repeatedly. One is that uh, he, he talks about Baldwin's use of particular language about uh, about Jesus and about the Christian tradition from the fire next time. And also the line you just quoted um, when Baldwin says, that the only uh, thing that the white man has that, that the black people should want is power. 
And Buckley's argument on this point was basically uh, he had been arguing since the late 50s, since the mid 50s, that uh, that you know white people had not only the right but the duty uh, to rule black people um, because they were, and as I'm quoting Buckley now, for the time being, the advanced race. And so Buckley had this view of a kind of cultural superiority of of whiteness. And and so what he really wanted Baldwin to say is not that you what black people need is power, but he wanted Baldwin to say that what black people need is is culture, is civilization, is the kind of the civilizational argument that was really central to Buckley's racial politics. And so I mean he he sees that, you know, as as his primary focus in the debate, most of his reflections on Baldwin prior to the debate. And he also sees Baldwin as this enemy of of Christianity, which is, you know, I argue in the book is a much more complicated story. I mean, Baldwin has, you know, a very, uh, you know, sort of back and forth relationship with Christian institutions. But in some ways, Baldwin always thought of himself as a religious person, as as a Christian. And he, he calls uh, Jesus, one of the most deeply betrayed figures in, in human history. So yeah, and Baldwin a, is yeah. much more comfortable, right, in the in the language and thought world, in, in the imaginative landscape that the Bible. I mean, he can say, I'm, "I consider myself a Jeremiah." I mean, you can see a fluence, a fluency, a religious fluency that doesn't really come across as much in Buckley, right? I mean, you, you you've got this kind of like you know waspy sort of you know uh, or, or waska, I guess because he's a Catholic, but mm-hmm. uh, this 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 sort of uh, appreciation for christianity as something that grounds respectability right but but there but he, he doesn't seem as fluent in it as someone like baldwin is yeah that's right it's it's a really and I, and you know i i sort of talk a little bit about their theologies in the in the book but it's um but i think yeah i think that essentially the way i would read it is that is that buckley has this kind of sense of what it means to be a religious person that is that is really focused on this idea of a kind of devotion um, and, you know, and, and Baldwin is certainly somebody who is, as you said, deeply, deeply rooted. I mean, if you look at all the, a lot of the language he uses in his writing and his speaking, the titles he gives things. I mean, it's, it's, you know, almost, you know, not, not always, but very often it is somehow rooted in, uh, in scripture or in, you know, gospel, in gospel music, um, and, you know, the hymns and so on. And so Baldwin is somebody who that that is like that is definitely the way that is the language that is, it is central to his life from a, the earliest age. And and as you said, I mean, he's much more comfortable invoking that language and, and reflecting on what the implications of that language are for the current moral and, and political um, you know situations before us. Whereas Buckley has this kind of idea that, you know, you know, what, what he gets suspicious is when anybody says anything critical about, you know, a religious traditions, you know, practices, Buckley, you know, gets his guard up. And so he sees Baldwin, who in The Fire Next Time has very damning things to say about, you know, Christendom and Christian practice. Um, But he does not have any, you know, a hostile word to say. And I think this is true of the entire corpus of Baldwin's writing. Baldwin doesn't have a a crossword to say about the figure of Christ, I mean, which is a fascinating thing. And so it would have been nice if Buckley had engaged more seriously with Baldwin's writing, and they could have a a real conversation about these things because Baldwin, when he's confronted with Buckley uh, later, you know, a few months later in, in 1965, and also when he's confronted with uh, some of Buckley's uh, supporters like uh, James J. Kilpatrick, uh, Baldwin calls them out and says, look, um, you claim to be a Christian, but let's talk about this particular piece of scripture. Let's talk about what Christ's message is. And I want you to ask yourself whether or not you are actually treating human beings uh, as, as Christ called on you to do. So Buckley, Baldwin was very much 
uh, he wanted to call Buckley out and people like him out for a failure to live up to their the creed that they claim to hold so dear. And so whereas Buckley kind of had this idea, I, I see Baldwin as critiquing Christianity, he's critiquing the church uh, in the fire next time. So I see him as my enemy uh, when in fact, you know, Baldwin is thinks of himself as as a, a kind of, you know, he's certainly a revolutionary, but the kind of revolution that he's calling on is not a revolution that, as Buckley would uh, would put it, is, is to throw something over, but rather to rethink, you know, it's sort of a radical in the truest sense. He wants to go to the root of a problem and really ask ourselves questions about whether or not we're living up to our ideals. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sally Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower. Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsmith, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Yeah, and it seems also, ironically, that that Baldwin is probably a, a more sympathetic defender of the Enlightenment tradition than is Buckley. <laughs> although, although I mean, Buckley's got, you know what I mean? It, it sounds so strange that that to frame it that way, but it seems like he's got deeper roots both in the Judeo-Christian tradition and the Enlightenment tradition than Buckley, who is kind of the defender of all things Western. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah, this is one of the great, you know, the great ironies of this conversation uh, that Baldwin and Buckley have is that uh, is that, you know, Buckley is rhetorically very much, you know, going to talk to us about things like natural rights. I mean, Buckley says that both philosophically and religiously, the core of my creed is the inviolability of the individual. I mean, what could be more, you know, enlightenment liberal than that? However, you know, what we find is that when Buckley applies that idea to particular political circumstances in front of him, especially in the context of the black freedom struggle, that belief in the inviolability of the individual seems to go away pretty quickly. The devotion to the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence seemed to go away pretty quickly. And so it becomes clear, right? That this, and, why- this reverencing of the Southern way of life is interesting because it's it seems like a, a, a remnant of like. A, a, a call back to premodernity and like kind of these feudal sort of, I mean, there, and yet he's like, you know, he, he's pretty sympathetic to that and it not being disrupted, which is the sort of sovereignty of the individual. I mean, that seems to go out the window. 
Right, right, exactly. I mean, in, in Buckley, one of his favorite, the favorite pieces he ever had published in National Review was this piece by a very, you know, sophisticated intellectual Richard Weaver, who was a Southerner who was a teacher of rhetoric, rhetoric at the University of Chicago. And what Buckley liked about the, the piece is that it was essentially a philosophical defense of the worldview his parents had taught him. So it was basically an argument, as you just said, that was pre-modern, right? It was a, an idea that we, the Southern way of life, the Southern regime, as Weaver called it, is a regime that's rooted in hierarchy, but it's a hierarchy that's a humane hierarchy. It's a hierarchy in which those who are high and th- those who are high have an obligation to care for those who are low, and those who are low have a sense of meaning. They know where they fit within this structure, and and that was thoroughly racialized, right? It was thoroughly racialized for Buckley from a young age, and it was thoroughly racialized for Weaver. And so Buckley, and this is the idea he had for this big book with the revolt against the masses was precisely his, what Buckley wanted. And he says explicitly in his notes for the book that never was to be uh, a restoration of hierarchy is what he really longed for. And, and he says when he's reflecting on the moment, the early 60s, he says it may be the case that a restoration of hierarchy will come about as a result of a backlash against the black liberation struggle. And so he kind of laments the fact that that might be the central driving force, but he, he essentially says he's comfortable with that political energy, uh, you know, using that political energy as long as it leads to, to that outcome. So, so I think that what you get there then, right, is if he's simultaneously calling for this restoration of hierarchy and saying, I still care about the inviolability of the individual, is it's not, this is not a liberal creed. This is certainly not a democratic creed. And it's certainly a creed that seems to indicate that in Buckley's mind, you know, black lives did not quite matter as much or they didn't matter in the same way because he's unwilling to say, you know, there's certain, certain rights he says all people have, but he's clearly unwilling to say that all human beings are entitled to the same level of freedom and certainly the same kind of citizenship. Um, so, I mean, that's something that comes through. And Baldwin, on the other hand, is somebody who is, just as we talked about before with his engagement with um, the Christian tradition, Baldwin is deeply engaged with the Western tradition in a, in a, in a very serious way, in a critical way. Um, and I think one of the most remarkable things with, with Baldwin in the Western tradition is you look at you know, his reflections in on Shakespeare, for example, he wrote a piece in 1964, just not long before the debate with Buckley, called Why I Stopped Hating Shakespeare. And it's a really fascinating piece in which he reflects on moments in his life when he thought of Shakespeare as part of a, of a sort of like, as one of the authors of my oppression, as part of a tradition that is, has kept me at the, at the margins or on the outside. And Baldwin says that was the way I, I, I viewed him that way for a while. And then I recognized that Shakespeare actually is somebody who can help me, you know, use language in a way that can liberate people. And that I and I appreciate Shakespeare's honesty in his writing and so on. And so Baldwin is, is somebody who's really engaged in a, in a serious way uh, with these kinds of ideas. And whereas Buckley, it's very facile, it's very superficial. And, and when you really interrogate it, there's some huge, huge contradictions. And Baldwin seems to occupy the space that is hard to occupy today, where you have people that just let's defend the canon and great books at all costs, right? And then you have folks who are like, the canon is just oppressive and, you know, we need to get rid of it and just read contemporary stuff and in, 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 in a wide sort of multicultural palette. Like, whereas Baldwin seems to be neither of those camps. I mean, he, he can appreciate the Western tradition and yet he's contributing to a new tradition at the same time and he can mine that critically. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like there's enough of those voices in public life. It, 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 very often it's, it's, it's kind of one extreme or the other. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I, I really admire about, about Baldwin is that he was somebody who, 
really resisted categorization, resisted being, you know, forced into a particular camp. I mean, one of the things I discovered when I visited the Schomburg Center for Black Culture that now has Baldwin's papers is really from his earliest days, he got an author questionnaire for one of his first novels. And one of the questions in the that the uh, publisher asked him was, what sort of people annoy you most? Which I think is a great question. Maybe you should use that in future interviews. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so Baldwin says in in response, and this is you know in the in the you know the early fifties, um, he says the people who annoy me most are the doctrinaire, the people who are never troubled by doubt. And so I think there's something about that that carries through, and you can watch this in, throughout his life, and in, in terms of how he reflects on moral and political and social questions, is that Baldwin. Yeah, he doesn't want to make that choice that you just described. He doesn't want to say either I reject the Western tradition and, and think it needs to be scrapped altogether um, or I'm going to you know defend it as this this reified thing that we have to you know uh, defend at all costs. He wants to engage more critically. He wants to simultaneously say, yes, absolutely. We cannot have you know a reified canon that does not include voices um that have long been excluded. He thinks that's absolutely crucial if we're going to really, I mean, because this is part of his point, right? He says it at, at, uh, at Cambridge, I am not a ward of America. I'm not an object of missionary uh, charity. I am one of the people who built the country. So we need to recognize that history, right? That this has not been uh, a, a history that has simply been these, these voices that we've been admiring for a long time. We need to, we need to add voices. Absolutely. But at the same time, we need to we need to engage, you know, in a more serious way with those voices that have been dominant and we need to engage them critically. I mean, Baldwin, you know, this is one of the things that's important. I mean, Baldwin will will take, you know, somebody uh, from the Western tradition. I mean, you can take any particular example of a philosopher, important political thinker, a literary figure, and he will say, um, I have an obligation, right, to engage these ideas to expose these ideas to the extent uh, they've been used to, you know, as a source of oppression. But I also have an obligation to try to engage those ideas in a way that I might be able to utilize that language uh, for the cause of liberation. So I think Baldwin, yeah, he is somebody who refuses to make that choice. He wants to, he wants us to, 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 uh, you know, to all of us to refuse to make that choice and to engage rather more critically and also think about ways in which we can expand um, our, our sources of knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you paint a picture of Baldwin that strikes me as so quintessentially American, uh, like in the, in, in the best sense of the word. I mean, there, this kind of sort of tension with, you know, there's this sort of traditional aspect of America and this radical aspect, you know, and, 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 and there's always these tensions, especially since, and, and I think it's interesting, right? Cause we're almost slanted towards the more, the more radical in the sense that, Unlike, say, most countries in Western Europe, we didn't have this long pre-modern legacy that you can still look around and, and, and see buildings and stuff like that. Like, you know, we have this sort of enlightenment legacy here, you know, but, 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 but you know, there, there's this interesting sort of, in so much of our constitutional debates and things like this, there's, these, there's this wrestling with how to steward the tradition. And yet part of it is you inherit a system that's open to evolution at its heart. I mean, and, and Baldwin seems to get that. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, Baldwin is, you know, there, there's a sense in which yeah, he is this sort of quintessential American in, in this. There's a kind of radical, you know, individuality, radical, a kind of radical individualism in, in the way Baldwin uh, approaches the, the world that it that is, I think, captures a, a kind of aspect of of what it might mean to be an American. And I think that's and that's precisely the sort of question that 
Baldwin wants us to, to think about, right? What is it? What does it really mean, right? When we come to grips with the fact that so many folks have, have been excluded from these kind of major narratives in, in American history, what does it mean when we actually re- recognize our history? What, is it, what does that mean in terms of how we identify uh, what it means to be an American today? What does it mean in terms of patriotism, you know, to love the country, you know, Baldwin argues is to is to have this willingness to, to criticize it perpetually um, and, to, and to come to grips with the fact that we have this myth, these mythologies that, uh, that keep us enthralled, that, that sort of uh, allow us to be evasive about our history. I mean, so Baldwin really wants a kind of, and he says this in Fire Next Time, he says this at the end of the Cambridge speech, he, he says, we have a responsibility, right, to come to terms with our history and on the basis of a real recognition of our history, forge a new identity for ourselves. And so I think in some ways, Baldwin was trying to model that for us through, you know, his own writing, uh, what it might look like for us to engage in this act of introspection, to engage in these acts of interrogation. You know, for Baldwin, those are acts of love, right? We need to, if, if we love ourselves, we have to be willing to look inside ourselves and be honest about what we see. And to love another human being is to help that other human being liberate themselves from the delusions under which they live. And so I think Baldwin, in terms of American identity, patriotism, uh, these are the sorts of things he wants us to do. And so when he talks about forging a new identity that is rooted in our history, um, it, it's a very, you know, he says it's a terrifying prospect because it really will force us to break free of mythologies that in many ways make us feel safe. And so, yeah, there is some, and there's something about that. I mean, he uses the language of frontier, right, to capture your this idea that you just indicated about Baldwin being quintessentially American. There's a kind of frontier, Baldwin says, of the self that we need to try to try to conquer. Um, and so Baldwin has this this ways in which, a, you know, he'll kind of use the language of American mythology and say, like, let's remember what the real, you know, conquering of the frontier meant historically and come to grips with genocide and oppression and exploitation and so on. But then simultaneously recognize the ways in which as individuals, we have to go, uh, we have to dig deeply into ourselves and try to overcome and conquer the mythologies that have kept us in thrall. It's interesting. We've come a long way in the United States since 1965 on, on in some levels around, you know, equality and segregation and, th- and sort of attempting to have a more integrated society in, in theory and practice. And yet there's still a long way to go. And, and I'm struck by in reading your work, how in many ways the debate is still so similar today to 1965. Despite so much change that's happened, you do still have, and you could put on cable news any given night, and you will see people arguing that people on the left don't care about America. They don't care about, you know, the, the, our traditions. They want to upend everything and, and, and destroy the, the foundations, right? It, it, like, it, it, you, you, you see this, this interplay that looks like, and, and you, you know, you hear people on the left saying people are not, are, are too dismissive of systemic, uh, injustice and things like this. I mean, you, Tucker Carlson, you, you can hear on Fox News this kind of, the kind of arguments Buckley makes about culture. You, I mean, you can hear them a lot, <laughs> pretty frequently on Tucker Carlson around things like immigration and, 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 and the culture and, 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 and decrying multiculturalism, things like this. It's interesting, right? Like, it, it, I mean, do you feel like good or bad about that with your book? Like, hey, I've written something timely, but I guess it's timely because we haven't gotten that far. <laughs> I mean, like, how do you process that in your own work? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, it's uh, next question is going to be what kind of people annoy you. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've been really, 
I mean, on the one hand, it's it's the the reaction of the book has been remarkable in in a lot of different ways. Uh, and I, I I will say I just got back from a week, you know, traveling around to a number of of campuses. I, I think I gave eight eight talks in twelve days, and and there so there are a couple of things about that experience that I think are are noteworthy. One is that on a lot of these college campuses, you know, a lot of students have not certainly have not heard of Buckley, um, and in many cases they haven't heard of Baldwin. Uh, and so to me, that indicates uh, something about the importance of, of works like this that, that draw on this history, because I think this history um, is, you know, and Baldwin said, you know, history is present in everything we do. You know, history is not past. I mean, Baldwin has all these, he was really obsessed with history. So in, in a sense, I feel, um, you know, I'm glad to be able to, to, sh- to share this history because I think it's really important terms of making sense of where we are. And, and on, on that point, I think it's, it's especially important. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, I will say it is thoroughly depressing, right? On the, on the other hand, that we are still having many of the same conversations. I mean, I think that it's clear to me, I mean, Baldwin says that what, you know, the, the, the end, toward the end of his Cambridge speech, he says, what concerns me most is that we are unable to hear each other. We are unable to listen to each other. And that that to him is so concerning because it, it signifies a kind of breakdown of reason. Um, and he says, you know, if, if reason breaks down where, you know, where reason ends, war begins, that breakdown of the authority of language uh, to Baldwin was terrifying, right? That, that if their reason breaks down, there will be blood, there will be fire. And so that is in many ways, if I imagine Baldwin, you know, back to life now, he would be even more horrified by where we are now. I mean, given the example, we have these alternative realities and we're so far apart. And many of these racial issues are, they're, they're less, um, it's much more, you know, sort of insidious, right? And it's much more, you know, it's, it's at least more, more subtle, you know, George Wallace versus Tucker Carlson. These are two different languages that we're seeing. And Baldwin says that insidious, that kind of more genteel sort of racism is in many ways much more sinister, right? Because it's, it's not as obvious. And Baldwin thought that really people uh, that are sort of weaving the webs of white supremacy in this more subtle way are, are far more dangerous. And so there's a kind of a sense in which um, the relevance of the book is, is deeply disturbing. Uh, and I, you know, I hope, and this is where I, you know, going back to, you know, your question earlier about reactions from, from the right, um, I, I really, I, w- I want to talk to people on the right um, I'm somebody who in my own, you know, I was on the right in an earlier life. Uh, and I really want to engage with people um, who have a different take on these issues, because I think part of the story that we need to talk about is that with somebody like Buckley, he kind of ended his life in many ways as people thought he was a kind of story of redemption on race. And I argue in the book that it's much more complicated than that. And that Buckley himself, it's important to note, never thought of himself as a racial reactionary, never thought of himself as a racist. He would, he bristled at that. And so part of what I argue in the book um, is that, you know, if our conception of racism isn't capacious enough to include some of what Buckley was up to in this period that I'm writing about, then our conception of racism is too narrow. We need to recognize that racism does not require animus, right? You can be a genteel sort of racist and you can, uh, you can talk in a language that, that indicates you are not like, you know, the, the alt right and you are not like Richard Spencer and so on and still be part of, of a system that maintains white supremacy. And Baldwin does not let any of us off the hook. Baldwin is there to remind us that in many ways we are all complicit in maintaining these systems of power. Uh, that marginalize people and exploit people. And so Baldwin, I think, the, as you pointed out, the progress we've made, Baldwin was, you know, along the way, right, over the course of Baldwin's life, there's all these moments of triumph. 
uh, whether it's you know a, you know major court decisions or major pieces of le- legislation or major elections. But Baldwin is always there as that kind of prophetic voice to say, yes, this is a step in the right direction. But I'm here to remind you that we need to think about all of these questions through the eyes of those at the margins, and we need to ask ourselves the ways in which we still need to undergo radical change, radical moral change, in order for us to ever really uh, begin to make uh, meaningful progress on all of these questions. So I think that's one of the things that's most powerful and most alive in the in the book. And I hope that the book will help people have those conversations. And if it does that, uh, and it helps move us in the right direction, then then I'll, I'll be I'll be very pleased. When, when were you on the right? Like, was that growing up and then into college? Like, what was that? How did that shift for you? Because obviously, that's not where you'd locate yourself now. How did that change? Yeah, I mean, so I, you know, I, I grew up in a, a fairly conservative household, um, not a household that was, you know, you know, ostensibly extremely political, but but a conservative household and, and sort of went off to college thinking of myself as a you know conservative Republican. And, and like many college students was, um, you know, seduced by libertarianism uh, as, a, as a college student. And I became very interested in libertarian ideas. And I really I I really was in that world. I was I had an internship at the Heritage Foundation as a college student. I, you know, went to, you know, sort of summer camps where I, you know, read Milton Friedman and all these folks. Um, And I I was really so I really one summer I was at conservative (laughs) camp. (laughs) Yeah, right, right, right. Right. Uh, Capitalism, freedom. Yeah. Um, So uh, so uh, and so I I think that really for me, I I went off to graduate school with that. I think still. you know, a a kind of way in which I thought of myself in in as as a kind of libertarian. But for me, I think really what um, helped you know uh, my journey sort of up from you know that that particular ideology and and really most ideologies in general was studying history and really coming to grips with the fact that a lot of those theories, while they were very appealing to me philosophically, when I actually tried to bring them down to the ground of real history, uh, things became much more complicated. And so I worked on the abolitionist movement as a graduate student and wrote my dissertation about Frederick Douglass. And I remember, you know, particular moments that I had as a, as a graduate student when uh, my sort of philosophical commitments were, sh- you know, were shaken. Uh, and and I, I looked at someone like Douglass, who on the one hand had a lot of those sort of classical liberal ideas that I cared about natural rights, you know, uh, self-ownership, liberty, um, uh, freedom from interference, that sort of thing that were clearly central to his philosophy. But then I was confronted with two big questions. One, Douglas also had to grapple with the question of what obligations the human beings have to others, right? As an abolitionist, he had to convince people that they should care about the rights of others. And that was a, a question that wasn't necessarily as easily dealt with within my libertarian philosophy of that time. And then also a question of the relationship between the role of the state and in the realization of freedom, of course, the state can be a threat to our freedom, and it certainly, uh, you know, it, that's that's a, a very important thing to reflect on and think about. On the other hand, we ha- also have to recognize that sometimes the state can play a role in liberating people. And for Douglas, you know, the role of the state, the, the state was ended up being central um, in terms of the liberation of, of African Americans. And so, using that, you know, that I think shook me loose of a lot of those philosophical commitments I had. And then as I have done this work on, you know, the the black liberation struggle in the 20th century. Um, it's complicated matters, you know, even more for me. So I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, like like Baldwin, I've I've come to believe that you know ideologies are are usually substitutes for thinking, and that if we're too rooted in any particular ideological view, we're probably being over overly simplistic about the moral and political world. So 
Um, yeah, so that's that's where I am now. I don't know that I can really label myself, but that's kind of a little bit about my own ideological journey. journey. You, you teach political science, right? It's interesting because on one level, the, the, the politics is so in right now, right? I mean, this is like people are, uh, we are so tuned in politically, at least in, in, infotain, in the infotainment sense. And yet also... The way that we're tuned in is probably least akin to thinking about it critically, right? In an academic setting, right? I mean, it's it's more like glad it, it's like it, it's gladiatorial, and it, you know, it's infotainment. I mean, so I mean, how do you is that a challenge? I mean, are the students that come and want to study political science are they kind of amped up on the left and the right? I mean, or or, or are they people that are kind of burnt out on the discussion? You know, it's been interesting. I mean, I think that the um the the students, I mean, well, there was a moment, right, in, in like 2016, 2017, when a lot of our students were were really, you know, amped up and, and were they wanted to write about the political moment in which we find ourselves. Um, and, and so we had like, you know, I think half of our senior thesis, um, you know, senior theses in uh, the spring of 2017 were somehow related to the Trump phenomenon. Um, but I think now, you know, students, you know, as time passes, they're, they're still engaged uh, with what's happening every day and, and certainly want to, you know, reflect on these questions that are, you know, that are from, you know, coming out of the headlines. But they also are, I think, appreciative of the ways in which they, you know, they need to sort of sometimes draw, you know, historically and think about, okay, well, how have we gotten to this point? How do we make sense of the political moment that we in which we find ourselves by by drawing on on you know American history and and, and world history and also thinking comparatively, trying to, you know, recognize you know, I have wonderful colleagues in my department who are doing international politics, comparative politics, um, and, uh, you know, and also different aspects of American politics from what I do, looking at the media, looking at uh, the impact of social networks on on people's political behavior. And I think that students are, you know, they see the, the value in trying to use multiple lenses, uh, you know, through which to try to make sense of the political world. And and so I do, I do really believe that, um, you know, one Baldwin, you know, quote that I, I'm really fond of is, you know, he, he says, you know, you drive to the heart of every answer to expose the question that it hides. So I think a really good education does that for you, you know, and so I think that our, our students, um, they do come, you know, obviously with ideological commitments, philosophical commitments. Um, but I think that part of what we're supposed to be doing in, you know, in the, the educational field is to try to inspire our students to, you know, to shake them loose from some of their certainties, right? I think that it's important that they're rooted in, you know, some, you know, moral truths. Like Baldwin always said, like, although he's a skeptic in all the ways I've described, he, I mean, he says from the beginning of his career to the end that his primary focus, his primary object is the freedom and fulfillment of each and every human being. And he never is shaken loose from that. So I think it's important we have those anchors, but that we recognize that in terms of realizing the freedom and fulfillment of human beings in the world, that that's a complicated story and that we need to think about the ways in which uh, sometimes some of our mythologies, some of our theologies, some of our ideologies can sometimes distract us from the human beings right in front of us. So Baldwin says, don't let ideas matter to you more than people, right? Let the, the people should be your focus. And then you, you figure out how to utilize ideas to liberate people and to treat people with dignity. Well, I mean, you're book the fires upon us is a great uh, start for anybody interested in those kinds of issues and uh, and your students are lucky to have you thanks for writing the book and, and thanks for taking some time to talk with me about it i really appreciate it scott it's been a pleasure talking to you and i i love your show so keep up the good work ah thanks so much thanks for listening to give and take if you like what you heard please do a couple things for me they are so helpful if you do them 
share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Nick for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, The Fire is Upon Us. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.